The Athletic. The Phil Hay Show. Hello and welcome to the show. The Phil Hay Show is brought to you by The Athletic and The Square Ball. I'm Dan Moylan. Hello. And from Florentino Perez's Volcano, here's Phil Hay. Hello. And from The Square Ball, here's Michael Normanton. Hello. Right now, if you want to subscribe to The Athletic, there is that special price still in place of $3.99 a month for six months, 40% off the full price of a sub. You get all the great analysis, the in-depth features from the very best team of football writers around and ad-free versions of all these podcasts. This week, Phil, talk to me. ESL Heaven on a website. There is no end of stuff to read there and some some cracking features actually about what's happened at the individual clubs involved and elsewhere in Europe, particularly in Germany and, and the Bundesliga and the implications for people like your friend Perez and also Andrea Agnelli over at Juventus. We've also got a long interview, which is online already uh, with Mark Jackson, the under-23s coach. Obviously, they, they won the title uh, last week. And an interview coming up with Saul Bamba, who I'm delighted to say is well on the road to recovery from his cancer diagnosis. Good news. Go to theathletic.com forward slash leads pod to take advantage of the discount. 40% off. That's theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. To the football then. And uh, there was some football played in the last seven days. Phil, uh, your one to watch from last week was European Super League. Obviously, you knew this one was coming. Um, we all did. We just didn't want to tell anybody. No, that's right. We called this, didn't we? Um, <laughs> I might also have, I might also have called Mo Salah as one to watch, who, needless to say, was was on the bench. There were a lot of jokes beforehand about this being one of those games where, with about three minutes to go, um, Sky's coverage suddenly gear changes and and says there is actually a game on tonight. So let's um, let's have some thought about it. But it it was completely swamped and completely overshadowed by the ESL announcement and more particularly the the events around about Ellen Road. I think it was quite important, really, that there was a lot of attention paid to it at the game itself. And and Leeds obviously made that happen with the T-shirts that the players were wearing, um, the, the banner that was put on the seats in the cop as well. But there was a lot of effort made by the Leeds United Supporters Trust to organise the, the flyby, the plane over the uh, over the stadium saying, saying no to, to Super League, also to organise a banner that they had outside the ground. And, and the effort made by Liverpool supporters to come over and and join them. It made an event of it. It kept people's eyes on it. It it meant that nothing was going to happen during the game itself that was going to distract anybody from the the real issue on the night. And it it was a it was a good game. And I know there was a, a lot of goodwill towards Leeds in the sense that a lot of people wanted to see Liverpool beaten on Monday night. But the the key to it all was the fact that it, it was just that sense of a, a real groundswell of of anger over what was coming and and what was being proposed with the. You know, an idea and a plan which was dismal and unsurprisingly fell apart very quickly. We were down there, weren't we, Michael, for the uh, the welcoming committee for the Liverpool coach. We saw all that unfolding. And it was strange, after the, the sort of sing-song and the crowd dispersed, there was a really flat atmosphere, wasn't there? There was very little anticipation for the game at that point. The whole thing was strange, really. I mean, I've been to a few protests down at Ellen Road over the years for Bates and Chilino, and they were always followed by game, and you got to the stadium and it was, it was absolutely rammed down there. And this was hundreds of people there but then everyone just drifted off and then we came to watch the game over the road knowing there's a Premier League football match kicking off a few hundred yards away and it one, was, of the, one of the biggest of the season as well one of those fixtures you look forward to and it was one of those ones that by the time we kind of sat down to watch it I almost felt like it, it didn't matter which was a shame and it overshadowed what was particularly in the second half probably one of the best performances of the season because as weeks go, Phil, it's been a good one, hasn't it? When you think about a point from Liverpool and then beating Man City before that, these were the fixtures that we all looked at and went, oh God, April looks tough. 
Absolutely. These were fixtures that you worried about had Leeds straight into April with 30 points, 35 points, and, and really needed something from them. But that was part of the problem on Monday, was that we talked last week about how important this game seemed to be for Liverpool when it came to qualifying for the Champions League. They'd, they'd obviously been eliminated by Real Madrid. They were struggling to, to get themselves back into fourth place. But then you were left for the question, well, does it really matter? Because if the European Super League is actually going to cling on and, and if they are going to be able to force it through and, and to form it in the way that they want to with invitational you know, invitational clubs, 15 clubs who are guaranteed to be involved, of which Liverpool would have been one. Does it actually matter where they finish in the Premier League? And and you knew it wasn't as simple as that. And you knew that the, the, the politics behind it was, was far too complex and, and far too volatile for it simply to be a case of this league starts up in August. But it did change the, the complexion of it. I do think that the supporters, not just at Leeds, but, but definitely including Leeds, have, have made a big difference here. And where I think they've made a specific difference as opposed to attacking the owners themselves, I think they've got the message through very clearly to players and managers, the people on the ground and the people who were in the line of fire. I know there wasn't a huge amount of sympathy for Jurgen Klopp on Monday, and, and I know he had his, his hissy fit about the, the T-shirts being put in the Liverpool dressing room, but I did feel for him because Liverpool's only comment prior to kickoff was a statement on their website, which it didn't even quote any of their own staff. It, it quoted Joe Glazer from... Manchester United. Very few of their senior officials came to the game at Ellen Road. There was no sign of, of Billy Hogan, their chief executive. You know, it, it was essentially a no-show. But what you had was Klopp and his players in, in the line of fire. They, they were, you know, they were jeered and, and they were they were abused in the street when they went for a walk um, earlier in the day in the centre of town because they were staying at the, the Crown Plaza in Leeds. And again, when they came off the bus, you know, the, there were the chance of scum. There were, there were lots of, of chants aimed at them as they went in. And Bear in mind that players and managers this season have got very used to turning up to grounds and just strolling in quietly because there's there's nobody there. So it'll come as, as a shock. And I, I certainly felt afterwards that as soon as you had somebody like James Milner saying quite openly, I don't like this idea and I hope it doesn't happen. And then Klopp, when he was pushed far enough saying, no, I don't think this is a great idea. You knew that it was going to start falling apart and you knew that it was going to be very difficult, even for very rich, powerful owners, to stick to the guns on, on this. And, and I suspect that it made it easier subsequently for Guardiola to say what he said on Tuesday for other people, little by little, and, and the players at Liverpool to start properly throwing grenades in, in the direction of, of the ESL. And from that moment, you, you were just waiting for clubs to pull out and for the, the house of cards to collapse. So just distilling what you're saying there, what you're saying is Leeds United saved world football. Is that right? <laughs> Leeds United would like everybody to, th- to think that they did, but they, they, you know, they, they played their part in, in killing the ESL. I mean, we'll come on to this in part two and speak about it in, in more depth and, and at greater length then. But I think we should be very wary of thinking that the, the ESL collapsing and disappearing is football saved or the multitude of problems in football eradicated. But it needed to be nipped in the bud really quickly, this, and, and it needed a, an aggressive kickback against it, which is exactly what we got. And not just at Ellen Road, you had the protests down at Chelsea as well. You had banners that were hung out at Arsenal and at Liverpool and, and Manchester City. And I do think it was significant that there were Liverpool fans who were outside the ground protesting on Monday night. If you're not even able to take your own people with you, you have very little chance of making these things stick. And and that, if your other 14 clubs in the Premier League were opposed to this, but fundamentally the six who were entering it, including the players and the managers and, and the supporters, were quietly supportive of it or, or kind of keen to see how it worked out, 
then there was a serious chance that it was going to happen. But as soon as Liverpool have their own fans on the doorstep protesting about this, you, you have to listen. Worth adding that there were Liverpool, Arsenal and Chelsea fans down at Ellen Road for that protest. So it wasn't just on their own doorstep. They were down there. Uh, and that was a strange sensation, seeing all those different shirts uh, mingling together. To the game itself then, do, do you think the events beforehand were a bit of a distraction for either side? Because we ended up with a classic game of two halves, didn't we? The old, uh, as the cliche goes. It felt a little bit as if Leeds' best performance up until halftime had come pre-match. They'd got it right um, with the, the T-shirts and the banners and, and the protests. But actually, they, they were very flat and they were a bit disjointed. They, they weren't getting any possession in midfield or any meaningful possession. And Liverpool were employing the press pretty effectively. And without it being a spectacular first half, Liverpool seemed to me to be by a distance the better team and, and deserved to be one up. They were pretty good at, at picking at the space in behind the fullbacks, particularly on the side of the field where you had Alioski and, and Jack Harris. And that was where the goal came from. But there did seem to be a sense that Alexander Arnold was, was going to bomb into that zone time and again and, and that Leeds were going to be vulnerable there. But I noticed after the game that Milner, when he was interviewed, said, we seem to get a bit tired in the second half. We seem to go a little bit flat ourselves. And you do find this against Leeds, that Leeds are so energetic and they're so fit and they've got so much stamina that they're very hard to kill off and and very hard to to get rid of. And and you saw that even at Arsenal where they were 4-0 up and there was still that feeling with 20 minutes to go when Leeds pulled it back to 4-2 that there may be something to be had from from the game. And I think that got into Arsenal's heads and I think they started to think that a game that should have been done and dusted was suddenly live again. But the second half was really impressive and and I I felt again, like they have done all season, it was just a a bit of a learning curve that Leeds were able to ride and and were able to to digest pretty quickly. And they were the best team without any question from halftime onwards. And as you say, four points in a week or four points in, in the space of nine days from a trip to City and a game at home to Liverpool is excellent. And um, it looks more and more like they will clear 50 points, which I think they deserved after the way they've played. And not not many games left to burn out now either, which is a, I know it's probably a bit of a disappointment to a lot of people. (laughs) There's just no sign of it though, is there? There's no sign of it at all. And I don't think any of us expected it because I still maintain that I don't think physically there was a burnout in season one. And there absolutely was no sign of burnout in season two either. I still think that Leeds would have coasted to promotion had COVID not shut the season down. I don't think the break was a huge advantage to them. Probably not a hindrance either, but um, I I don't think it made a difference. And then coming into this season, it it is truncated, but you've got fewer games. They haven't stuck around in the cup competitions for any length of time. It's been easier to manage. And you are finding, as as they'd had between City and Liverpool, there's a nine-day gap, and, and that's not so far on from the international break between Fulham and Sheffield United. It becomes easier to manage. And I, I think this the burnout theory is being comprehensively blown out of the water, which it, it needed to be. And I think it's it's high time that that, that was that was part. But this will do it, I think. One of the many things I'm grateful to Bielsa for is that I can understand football a bit better now. He's uh, we've said before, haven't we? He's kind of educated us all a little bit um to understand how tactics work and what you mentioned there about the pressing Phil yeah I noticed that with with Liverpool I was actually engaged in looking at how they pressed and particularly because they mark zonally but then press in particular areas like they might press the full back or they might press the uh, the centre half but I thought in the end we we found a way to cope with it and we and we dealt with it pretty well they did get in behind us for the goal I'd like to know from you do you think that was one hell of a ball or bad defending or, or both 
it was a mixture of both. It was a, a perfectly timed run. If if you look at Jota when he plays it as well, he's got the anticipation to know. Calvin Phillips actually does this quite a lot of, of knowing, and Hernandez as well, you know, as he did at his peak, of knowing where to play the ball and, and what the sort of right percentage ball is. You know, who's likely to be running? Where's the gap likely to be? And, and Jota did pick him out. But um, I think Jamie Carragher focused on this afterwards. It, it was a slight flaw in, in the man-marking system in the ailing was just a few yards off Jota, so Jota had the time to to play that ball. Um, nobody was tight to Alexander-Arnold, um, so he was free to cut it back inside. And also, Manny had nicked a, a couple of metres on Diego Llorente. So it's it's that momentary switch off. And it, it kind of makes the point, which people often say, it, it's not a cliche, that it doesn't take much in the Premier League for, for you to get stung. You know, you, you don't have to be asleep for long for very, very good players to do you in. But I'd, it was, again, just nice to see the, the balance tipping. I thought Paveda, again, I, I'm still not convinced that you would get enough out of Paveda for him to be starting in the Premier League. But I, I do feel that more often than not, he is a very good impact sub. I think his direct running and his pace makes defenders worried and it makes them worried at a time where they've they've already got an hour in their legs and are, are maybe starting to tire slightly. And and just all round, a, another really strong performance. And what you're saying there about the kind of education we've all had, you, you see a lot of arguing about does XG matter or people too fixated on data and analysis and everything else. I kind of feel like there's something in it for everybody. There, there are times when I, I do want to watch a game through those sort of lenses, you know, I, I want to see what's happened statistically. I want to know what's happened in, in terms of the data and, you know, the, the sort of tactical approach. There are times when I just like to turn up to a game and, and see it go hell for leather end to end. And, you know, to, to have a, a bit more of the magic in it rather than the focusing too much on the numbers. And then like everybody else, there are times when you, you just want to get in the pub, get leathered and, and get onto the, the away end. I, I, I always feel like there are kind of multiple strands to the way you can enjoy football but I would say that the thing about Bielsa is that I've never enjoyed the kind of tactical side of it more I do find it extremely fascinating and more and more I can understand why he has over the years too When it comes to Pervader I think the phrase you're looking for as the great man would say was he knows how to unbalance his opponent he's very good in an attacking sense isn't he to do that he's very disruptive Yeah unbalanced is the word actually you're absolutely right That that is what he does and I think as time goes on he's going to be more and more useful off the bench. I, th- I think, as I say, I, I still feel quite a distance away from a point where you would be happier to start him ahead of Harrison or, or ahead of Rafinha, for example. But um, I, I, it looks like a it looks like a good signing that. And I think, I mean, we, we wrote about him when he first signed and everybody we spoke to had so much to say about his ability and his talent and his his potential and, and as with everybody else and everybody at, at sort of under 23's level, which he is still essentially at, um, it's just about realising that. And round to the equaliser then, Diego Llorente. Nice moment for him and reward for the hard work for coming back from all those injuries and setbacks. I thought he had a pretty difficult game, actually. There, there were some lovely moments for him. So he, he, I like the way he gambles in possession. I love some of his crossfield balls and, and the, the sort of searching passes that, that he looks for. But defensively, it was a bit of a struggle um, in periods of the game. And, and defensively, you know, he carried some of the blame for the concession. But it was nice to see Leeds score from a corner as well. To, to score in the way that they so often concede and, and in the way that leads to, to so much criticism of them. And I didn't feel in the end that there was a vast gulf between the side that Klopp's got and the side that Bielsa's got. I, I think it's too early to say that the gulf is necessarily as, as small as it looked because you'd, you'd probably find out more in a season where Liverpool had had a full summer to refresh and 
and perhaps will will Klopp's had a, a chance just to, to regroup and and to reset because they definitely look like they need it. But again, just competed really, really well and, and look very comfortable in the league. And I think, I'd be careful what, what I say here, but I think going into next season, it feels to me that there are clubs in the Premier League who have more to do than Leeds do, you know, to, to ensure that they have another good year. Well, the better numbers are, what, a seven-point difference now? We're on 46, having played 32, and Liverpool, same games played, they're on 53. That's about right, isn't it, on the balance of the season, you'd say? It's a strange one, I think. When you think back to the start of the season, the idea that we would play Liverpool and completely dominate them for certainly the last half hour would have been almost inconceivable, I think. And and to have done it with, if you go back a, a year, I suppose, and look at the fact we're doing it with some players who we, we doubted whether or not they could make the step up, people like Alioski, Costa, Roberts, Bamford to an extent as well, and then people who weren't even involved really at this stage last year, like Pervader and Stroke, to have done it with all those players on the pitch it does show a, a, the distance we've travelled, I think, in this time and that we've made the step up look at the risk of setting ourselves up for a fall next year. Made made it look really quite easy. And not only that, but the, the progress we've made over the season, we've come on leaps and bounds, don't you think? I do feel as if most of the players, again, have improved. And the big question this summer is going to be, are they going to move forward from here en masse or are certain players going to plateau or regress? And there's no real way of, of knowing that. It, it's hard to be certain that Bamford will score 15 to 20 goals again next season. It's hard to be sure that Dallas will be the same kind of dynamo in the centre of midfield as as he's been. I mean, he, he's gone from someone who, I think I've said before, that Uwe Rosler always said that he thought he saw in Dallas potentially a, a central midfielder. But I don't think many of us had um, up until the point where he, he started playing there regularly. But he's gone from being more than just a bit of a square peg in a round hole to actually being probably the first player you you would pick there, perhaps behind Calvin Phillips, but certainly ahead of Matthias Cleek at, at the moment. But will they get that again? I think the good thing is there are obvious things they can do to this this team to make it better. One of them being signing a, an out and out out and out left back um, and and kind of properly filling that role. But also, if they can get out of this period where it's been centre-back injury after centre-back injury or suspension or whatever else and the, the combination there has had to change time and again and nobody's able to get themselves on a run of 15 to 20 games and, and properly find the rhythm. If they can get out of that with Luke Ayling on the right and looking really comfortable at this level, you could actually start to get to the point where you've got a very, very settled back four and I can only see that making Bielsa's team stronger. And maybe that central midfielder in there that could uh, just lighten the burden a little bit so it's not all on Mateus Click's shoulders and Stuart Dallas can be in there as a workhorse but if you need a bit of inspiration you've got somebody who can carry it forward you know somebody who's got good progressive carrying stats thinking of a player in Italy who might fit that bill but we'll come on to him another week Someone with assists and goals um, and who can do Rabonas from from down down the left wing It is a, a serious point though I, I just I do feel that the strain and the pressure that's been put on Click has probably passed the point where he can, you know, he, he can properly manage playing every single game. I, I do think that there needs to be a little bit of rotation there now, or or at least, you know, a, a spread of of the burden as opposed to him just doing nigh on a hundred league games on the bounce. But again, it it doesn't it doesn't feel to me as if you go from front to back and you pick out four or five positions where there are issues or there are problems. I think they're strong in, in most areas on the basis of the form this season, but it does seem evident that the areas of the team that they really need to strengthen, I, I think they will. And as long as they get those signings right, and as long as those signings, all the variables involved, as long as they arrive and settle in and, and make the sort of impact that, for example, 
Irente has and, and Rafinha most of all, then they, they will be a better team. Just closing out the Liverpool chat then, overall from a purely football perspective anyway, it felt like a good night's work. Yes, I, th- I think so. In the way that it's felt very much like a, a good season's work, six games to go and, you know, very much very much in order. I mean, almost 20 points clear of the bottom three now, which makes you realise how how strong they have been and, and how consistent they have been. I know you've got 14 defeats on, on the record set against 14 wins, but they have been consistent in winning games and they haven't got sucked into that kind of nightmare scenario where you, you lose um, and when you don't lose, you, you end up drawing because you don't quite have the clout to dig out um, three points from a, a game. They're, they're a long way clear. I think they will go past 50 points and I think this will go down as every bit as good a season for Bielsa as the previous two. Super League. We're several days on from it now. Feels like a lifetime. Where do we even start with this? How do you even begin to unpack what's gone on in football this last week? It was a power grab very much like Project Big Picture. And I don't think it's a coincidence that it has dropped to bits as quickly as Project Big Picture did. It These sort of initiatives always have little caveats or or little paragraphs at the end of the statements talking about how this is ultimately in the interests of the game and this is all for the greater good and it's all about supporting the pyramid. But everybody stands back and looks at it in plain sight and sees nothing more than self-interest and an attempt by the clubs who are already rich and already very powerful to accrue more of both. There was a great article by a colleague of mine, John Coleman, in the, the News and Star up in Carlisle, which had the headline, the reasons why the, the, the European Super League could be good. And, and it simply said there aren't any. End of article. And I genuinely agree with that. You, you had 12 clubs involved who have high levels of debt, who have been responsible in the main for pushing up transfer fees, for pushing up wages, for spending well beyond what they, they can afford in some cases, and are now you know facing pretty heavy financial liabilities. And it was never going to wash. The, the idea that people would ben, you know, people further down the pyramid in England or Spain or Italy or whatever else would benefit from this, it was hard to comprehend because this did just seem like a way of clubs guaranteeing their involvement in a competition which was going to pay them a huge amount of money. But even after Project Big Picture, it seems to have surprised the various owners involved that the, the backlash has been so severe. And they, when I've seen you know John Henry, for example, um, that apology to Liverpool's fans, they look shell-shocked. I mean, some of um, Perez's comments coming out, <laughs> he sounds utterly furious about this, as if he cannot believe that he's been fronted up in the way that he has by you know minions on the street who should just be sitting back and, and letting him do do what he likes. It's been, it's been fantastic. I, I enjoyed it immensely on Tuesday night when club after club started pulling out and, and the whole thing unravelled, in part because you, you it needed to happen, in part because you knew it was going to happen. But also it was just the, the spectacular failure of something that had been that hadn't been thought through properly or, or at the very least had not been promoted properly. I mean, the PR around it was absolutely dreadful. There just wasn't any. You had this hasty announcement on Sunday. It, it seemed to me because the news had leaked and suddenly there was a, a real guard action to kind of handle this in desperate circumstances. But then no nobody put forward from Chelsea or Manchester United or Liverpool or Manchester City to actually try and sell it and to actually try and explain it. it I can understand why Klopp looked so furious on Monday because it did seem as if he was sitting there thinking, I don't know why I'm having to answer for this. And, you know, if you push me, the only way I can answer is by going against 
the owners above me. Um, so it's been a you know a, a sort of unmitigated debacle. Um, but as I was saying earlier, I think it's important that people don't look at this and think that the battle has been won because it absolutely hasn't. Do you think at the heart of it, there's from the owner's point of view, there's a fundamental misunderstanding that they think people would want these games. They can't understand why you wouldn't want to play Real Madrid twice a season and and Man United playing Liverpool and Spurs in there as well for for some reason. But you know they they seem to think that these games it's like well why wouldn't you want this? Surely this is better. You don't want to go. You don't really want to go to Crystal Palace, do you? You're wasting your time with that. Just play this every week. I uh, I wrote on Monday that Bielsa was five when Tottenham last won the title. So no, he can't remember it either. And it did feel as if they were being invited by virtue of the fact that they could kind of do with a sixth English club and Tottenham have a, a massive stadium. But it did leave them open to the, you know, the jokes and the ribbon about the fact that in terms of the trophy cabinet, and you know, even even Dulux were digging them out over this one, in terms of the trophy cabinet, there isn't an, an awful lot in it, certainly, certainly not recently. I think you're right. I think they totally misunderstand the way in which franchise systems are seen here. And perhaps that is due to the fact that there are American owners involved, although in no small way is this being driven by Perez and Agnelli, you know, who, who are two guys who've, who've existed in European football for, for a long time. But it, it's about limiting risk. You know, that they, they put money in and, and, and they want to make sure that there's as little risk as possible of, for example, this season, Liverpool not making it into the, the top four, which which would be very, very damaging for them. I think as well, you, you'll have seen the tweet from Dan Rowan at the BBC, which was mentioning the contrast that the, the, the ESL clubs are trying to draw between what they call legacy fans, which is to say fans, and future fans, which I honestly feel in their heads consist of people in random cities and towns around the world and potentially in places like England and Spain who grow up deciding they're going to support PSG or grow up deciding they're going to support Juventus, even though they are so far removed from those clubs that they have nothing in common with them at all. And, and there is no reason to pick them out other than they are the, the cream of the crop in a, a competitive sense. And I know that's always happened. I know you have people who support clubs who are not on the doorstep and, and there've always been always been quips about that. It's always been a bone of contention. But this to me did seem to be trying to desperately tap into the if if you want to call it the, the FIFA generation, who, by the way, I don't think people like Perez and Agnelli understand at all. I don't think the, the FIFA generation, to call them that, growing up in Leeds at the moment, want anything other than to follow Leeds and to follow Bielsa. I don't think the appeal of watching Atletico Madrid against Juventus over and over again is, is anybody's idea of fun. We, we almost touched on this with the, uh, the chat about the Deportivo game back in 2001. I feel like the Champions League is, is a little bit sedate and dull and sterile at the moment anyway and and if you look at UEFA's plans to expand it I don't see that getting any better but it, if there's no magic in football and if it all is just showbiz and celebrity then then you do lose the game you do and I think that's what people realised last weekend that this was a potentially damaging step towards a game which none of us are going to like I quite like the fact the reaction of I guess the Spurs and Arsenal fans in particular because they were they were essentially being offered a buy into a competition that they didn't have any right to be in and still were rejecting it. And it's it reminded me a bit of, of our situation for many years, being outside of the Premier League, because we used to joke on, on our podcast about they should just let us in, really. But it was a joke well, yeah. because we know that it's we were in the Championship because we're a badly run team. We've not got any good players. We've got a bad manager. And that's just something you have to accept when you go. It's part of the agreement when you support a team 
is that if you're bad, you don't you don't get to do well. You don't get nice things, and it's it was quite nice to see. I guess fans of Arsenal and Spurs in particular going along with that. Yeah, just going back to the owners, I think they don't even understand people, never mind like Gen Z who they're trying to tap into, Phil. I think the detached from reality, the lot of them, the billionaires, they live in a bubble, you know, they jet around the world, they're, they mix with other people like themselves, they speak to other people like themselves. Maybe they got a bit of research from a company that was expensively paid for that said, this is what Gen Z wants. But I just, I think the whole thing was underpinned by an arrogance beyond belief and our mate Moscow White made a very good point saying that you know how can you be arrogant enough to throw a blanket over all of Gen Z and and characterize them all as wanting one thing it's certainly true that a lot of younger fans pick out individual players and attach themselves to teams because of those players like Mbappe or Pogba or whoever that might be but that makes no allowances for them growing up or or their tastes changing and what right does this this cartel of, of old men have to decide the future of football based on uh, what's happening at the third week of April in 2021. I hate this idea as well that young people these days don't have any attention span and can't cope with a 90-minute game of, of football, as, as Perez was was trying to say. Um, I don't follow that at all. I know other sports have changed, so in cricket in particular, you've seen a shift towards longer forms of, of the game away from test cricket and you know county cricket has never been widely followed but then most people do not particularly if you if you have a job do not have time to go to four days of, of county cricket but that doesn't mean it doesn't have merit and it doesn't mean that it's it's not very enjoyable when you do when it comes to not understanding people and I, I do agree with that you can see that with Tottenham and Arsenal because the hierarchy of both clubs have not even realised that the supporters there are already looking for sticks to beat them with. You know, Arsenal's performance has been so mediocre um, and Tottenham's hasn't been great and clearly they've, they've sacked Mourinho this week as well. You've got fairly disillusioned or slightly you know, militant fan bases, unhappy fan bases, who are only going to be riled further than this. I think your best chance with you know an, an initiative like this is with Juventus or potentially Real Madrid or Barcelona or Manchester City because things are good there. Things are good. Um, they're, they're winning trophies. They're doing well. I know Barcelona and Real Madrid have got massive debts and they look like they're, they're straying into, into big trouble. But the clubs who are built on winning everything and being huge and signing Galacticos and you know that, that, that kind of model that seems to me to be miles removed from the ordinary man on, on the street. But at Arsenal, the supporters there are already spoiling for a fight. They, they really are. They don't. They don't like Kronk. They don't like the, the structure of the board or the club there. They're not seeing huge progress under Arteta. The squad is performing in a very mediocre sense. And I think they have the wherewithal to see an announcement like that, which says Arsenal and Spurs are, are going to be joining this. And, you know, to have a laugh at their own expense, to be self-deprecating and to say, why on earth are we involved in this? You know, why on earth have we been asked to join? Do they, do they need somebody to finish bottom of the pile? every season, which conceivably Spurs and, and Arsenal could do. And that, that that goes back to what I said at the beginning. I, I do think it was so important here that it wasn't just fans of the 14 clubs who were turning on the ESL proposal, because it was quite easy for people to come back and say, of those 14 clubs, how much can you trust that your own boards or own owners would not have said yes to this if they'd actually been invited? Isn't it easier to be opposed to it if you're outside the building anyway? But when you had you know clubs like Tottenham, Arsenal, who were being offered the, the share of the massive money that was supposedly going to be involved, although I still think that was, you know, I think that was up for debate how that money was going to appear and, and how it was all going to be financed. When even they are saying we, we don't want this, where do you go? On the money side of it, actually, do you think that 
they were potentially a little bit spooked by the idea that they were going to get a load of broadcast revenue from this. And then fairly quickly, you had Sky and BT committing an awful lot of time to slagging it off. You had Amazon made a statement saying they weren't involved in it. Do you think that maybe made people step back and think, oh, maybe this isn't quite the cash cow we thought? We kind of, we imagined people would be falling over themselves to get hold of this and it seems everyone hates it. There are other broadcasters out there, particularly global broadcasters, and I think they might well have looked you know, further afield to the, the Middle East or to the States. Um, and you, you can't forget that Sky and BT Sport have a have a vested interest in in this as well, in, in the sense that they, they cover the Premier League and it would be very damaging to them. You can't forget either the, the huge amount of money that BT Sport paid to cover the Champions League not, not so long ago. It, it's one of those scenarios where, with the exception of the supporters, um, nobody's nobody's innocent in this. And and even, you know, and I include myself in this with Hearts Up North, e- even supporters, we're all guilty from time to time of, of wanting clubs to push themselves and of fixating on who's signing next and who are we buying and why aren't we spending more money and, and everything else. The, the model as a whole is is basically broken. But just to go back to, as well, the, the other 14 clubs and, and the assumption that none of them would have done this because they're all too wholesome and, and all whiter than, than white. It seems to me that when you have somebody like Alexander Seferin at UEFA throwing punches in all directions on Monday and really calling out everybody involved in this in a, in a really bitter and, and aggressive way and, and said some terrific things, I thought, but then swerving on, on Wednesday after this, this massive climb down to saying it's great to have everybody back involved, you know, hopefully we can have some unity now. You are left thinking, are UEFA actually going to do anything about this? And are the Premier League going to do anything about this? Or, or is it going to come back to that same old reckoning of these clubs actually help to bring in the biggest amounts of money? You know, let's not pretend that Sky pay a huge amount of cash for the Premier League in order to show Burnley versus Crystal Palace. They don't. Everybody knows that. The, the, the money is there because of the exposure that they get from, from the big six. But you cannot have this, and you can't have this without some form of meaningful sanction and, I think, structural changes, like Bielsa was talking about on Monday night. And if that happens, if there is proper action taken against the owners of the clubs or the clubs themselves by the relevant authorities, then this could potentially make a difference. But if everybody just sweeps this under the carpet and settles back into the old routine, then I think it's probably, in all likelihood, this will just come around again in a different form. Are the regulators part of the issue there in this case? Because essentially you have the the regulator is also the same person who is going to profit ultimately from a successful competition and from increased TV rights, in, in the case of both the Premier League and UEFA and FIFA to an extent as well. They they all need this money. They're all getting their cut of it at yeah, every single let, step. Let's not, pretend it wasn't, let's not pretend it wasn't driven by self-interest. Absolutely. We're, we were all self-interested to an extent, weren't we? Yeah, so you've got FIFA staging a World Cup in Qatar that has huge questions, of uh, you know, ethical questions around it, which certainly nobody at FIFA seems willing to to properly address. And, and, you know, let's not pretend that that isn't fundamentally about cash. It is. You've got UEFA who are implementing this new Swiss model of um, Champions League, which, to my mind, does seem to be doing, to a far lesser extent, but still seems to be doing what the, the ESL was trying to do in safeguarding the, the involvement of the bigger clubs, clubs with track records, clubs who they, they don't want to be missing out from from the tournament. None of this and none of the death of, of ESL is going to cure any of that. And I think that there does need to be a big move towards you know systemic change and, and structural change, which actually provides some level of protection 
from all this and addresses the, the pretty staggering inequality that has been there in football for, for a long time. I mean, nobody should be shocked about this happening over the weekend. And I think Bielsa had it, had it bang on on Monday where he said, I'm not surprised at all that this has happened. Firstly, because the structures aren't in place to stop it happening. The excesses have been obvious for a long time, but nobody has done anything about it. And if you look at the economy in general and across the world, this is what people do. The richer they get, the more they want. The richer they get, the less accountability and the less scrutiny they want and the less challenge they want to the, their authority and, and their power. Um, and that was fundamentally what the, the ESL was about. My gut instinct is, in terms of punishment, I think we might see a financial fine rather than points because they won't want to damage the integrity as they see it of uh, of the Premier League by uh, punishing these clubs. Because like you say, you don't want to actually annoy them too much because they need them. However, I suspect the punishment will be limited to that. And then what we'll see is regulation where in future they say, right, if you sign up for anything outside the sanctioned competitions with UEFA and FIFA, you forfeit your place in the Premier League at the end of the current season. And that's how they'll probably get around it something like that. But I mean, I think that the good thing, Phil, though, um, and do you agree is that even if it's in the short term only, they've overplayed their hand by doing this. Um, You know, the shot for the moon, it's backfired. And now they've been forced to give up a little bit of power because uh, the executives from these six breakaway clubs have been asked to leave committees uh, on the Premier League, haven't they? So at least for now, there is an opportunity within the Premier League to cement some sort of, I don't know, some insurance against this within within the system. They overplayed the hand with Project Big Picture as well, though, and, and that was only five, six months ago. You know, it's, it's kind of come around twice this, that on, on two occasions they've tried to power grab and, and been embarrassed, but it hasn't put them off having a, a second go after Project Big Picture fell apart. I think you're right about the financial penalties. Again, how, how keen would UEFA have been to have expelled Real Madrid, Manchester City and Chelsea from the Champions League this week? I mean, if if they'd done that, the tournament would have been over. It would have been dead and buried. You'd have had PSG left in, and and you know, on the, on the subject of PSG, I'm I'm still to be convinced that the reason they're outside of this is not purely because they can't go against FIFA or UEFA with with the World Cup coming up next year. I, I think that will be a, a, a huge motivating factor for for their decision. But financial penalties are not going to make a huge amount of difference um, to these clubs. It's just that for the you know, the governing bodies, the, the Premier League, whatever they say, don't actually want these six to, to disappear from the league. They absolutely need them to maintain the, the revenue streams and the sponsorship and, and TV deals. UEFA don't want to lose your top clubs from the Champions League. UEFA don't want to u- lose your top players from the Euros coming around this summer. FIFA don't want to be banning them from the World Cup. I don't think, deep down, many people actually want to do anything about this. Um, I think they they would be quite happy, certainly at the the very highest level, for the game to just carry on ticking along as it it has done previously. But there is going to have to be some show of strength and and they are going to have to demonstrate that they have actually done something meaningful. And while I agree with you that it probably will be financial penalties, I really don't see what that achieves. Have you had word from Inside Leeds about this? Any uh, specific comment? They've not said anything um, on the record apart from what was said by Bielsa and, um, and Patrick Bamford on, on Monday night after the game. But they're very, very unhappy. Very unhappy in the same way as they were with Project Big Picture because they see themselves as one of the clubs in the Premier League who can grow and can get stronger and can get more competitive. And, and they're one of the clubs that really do need an open field. You know, open field, open game, open door because... They aren't going to be in, in a close shop environment created tomorrow. They aren't going to be in it. They aren't on that threshold just now. But 
they do have plans to expand the stadium and they do have plans for a new training ground and, and they've got the 49ers on board and they, they do have significant financial support. And going back to Project Big Picture, that was the same argument back then was that they were almost conceding power for no tangible gain at all. There was there was no upside for them at all. Yes, it would be a good thing if more money filtered through the pyramid. But if there was no advantage to be had for Leeds, why should Liverpool, Manchester United gain better voting rights? Why should they agree to the Premier League being cut down to 18 clubs when certainly initially it might have been the case that they were more at risk of relegation than, than many others? You have to have people on board. And no, Leeds were, were thoroughly, thoroughly opposed to this. And I think that that message was sent by the fact that they had the T-shirts and they had the banner on Monday night. You saw Victor Orta holding it up in the in the director's box. You know, there, there was no ambiguity about the fact that the club were driving that and were happy to drive it. Within Leeds, obviously, Orta, I mean, he quite likes a bit of, <laughs> he quite likes a bit of aggro, doesn't he? I think and he, he, he's been pictured before and he's against modern football T-shirts. So I think his stance on it would obviously be pretty clear. I like to think that Angus Kinnear, growing up a Luton fan, would be quite opposed to the idea of this elitist model of football. Whereabouts do the 49ers fit in in this, do you think? That I can't tell you. And likewise, Radrazani as well. I mean, you, you'll have seen the tweets and, and I'm, I'm happy to take them at face value and, and you know, to, to accept that he was very, very opposed to this. But again, you know, to, to look at Leeds specifically, you go back two, three years, you had the issue with the badge, which was terribly received. You had the issue with the the Myanmar tour, um, which was very political, and, and there was certainly financial interest in that for his company, Eleven Sports. It, it's one of those situations where I always feel that you should, as a football fan, you should approach any owner with the scepticism, no matter which level you're at, and and that the owners can prove themselves. And Radrazani's done a lot of good things at Leeds. I mean, there's no no denying that at all. But I think for any of the fourteen to say we would absolutely not have supported this in, in any circumstances is, as I was saying, easy to say when it's not being dangled in front of you. And the way it sounded last week was the clubs who were involved, the six, it did sound as if they scrambled in or some of them scrambled in because they didn't want to be left behind. I think at the same time, that's been used as an excuse by more than one of them to say, look, we only got involved in this because we didn't feel we had any other choice. I, again, I, I would not accept that at face value. But the 49ers obviously come from a franchise environment in the NFL. Uh, so, you know, you, you can't just assume that they wouldn't be aligned with FSG or, or other American owners, even potentially the Glazers in, in the way that, that they think. But there's certainly nothing to say that they do. And there's been nothing to say this week that actually they would be supportive of, of the ESL. But in terms of what they are actually thinking about this, I can't answer that. All I can say is that Leeds as a club were, were 100% opposed. On the ownership in general across across the Premier League, do you think this is going to see changes? Do you think we might see, with this model being rejected so so completely, do you think you might see American people like edging away from the Premier League a bit? FSG might think, mm, maybe this is not, not what we want after all. I think if they do edge away, they'll edge away because they feel that they have to. I, I don't think there's any way in which you can create a mechanism that forces Abramovich to sell Chelsea or the Glazers to sell Manchester United, because when you consider the cost of the clubs and the value of the clubs, you're only going to replace like with like, really. Whoever was coming in would need extraordinary amounts of cash to buy either. So they, they fall into the same bracket of wealth and, and power as the other people who are already involved in, in this ESL movement. But it might well be that the Glazers or FSG, as, as two examples, look at it and think that actually the, the avenues towards greater wealth and greater revenue and, and more income 
uh, if not closed, are, are very difficult to get down. And, and they're not in the same boat as the Abu Dhabi owners at, at Manchester City, who seem to have limitless wealth, and Abramovich, who always seems to be able to find money from wherever without you know what, what looks like external support. So it's possible. It's possible. But the question I would ask is, if, if FSG go from Liverpool, aren't they just going to be replaced by a similar group? I mean, who who is going to be able to conjure the cash needed to buy, you know, at the moment, reigning European champion, uh, sorry, reigning Premier League champions and recent European champions? It, you know, these clubs are hideously expensive to buy and that there really is only an elite bracket of people out there who can who can buy them. Given everything that we've had over the last, you know, 16 years or whatever, it does make me grateful that we are in the situation that we're in and it's nice to see Leeds United's response and it was nice for Leeds United to be on the right side of the argument. Don't you think as well that the, one of the reasons why the Bielsa story has been such a sensation and, and has been so easy to enjoy is because of the abject misery that went before it and because of how difficult and, and awful those 16 years, you know, most of them in the EFL were. That, somebody said to me earlier in the week, the real lows or, or any form of lows of what accentuates the highs. And I think we all felt that last season when it finally happened. You you couldn't imagine it, it being more kind of extreme exhilaration because it had taken so long to come round. And from my perspective, you either like the thrill of the chase and you accept that it can't always be good, or you want the sterile, boring environment of a, of a closed shop and a, a franchise system that pretty much guarantees you guarantees you money and guarantees you inclusion every year. And, and as soon as you stray into that, it, it really is just business, nothing more. It's the concept that things can change is the is what keeps football interesting, isn't it? I've seen, it was, I think it was Perez again saying that these teams, that the founder members have earned it and as if as if that's an unchangeable thing. You know, when if you go back to when, when Leeds were in the Champions League, Man City were absolutely nowhere. They were, they were a lower mid-table Premier League club. Chelsea as well, they had Ken Bates in charge. They were always going to be kind of kicking around European places, but nothing like the force they've become. Things change and that is that is the whole point of it. I mean, yeah, that's you, why it's interesting. You're not a Torquay fan or you're not a South End fan unless you believe that your lot can get better and it's having that belief that keeps you going to football, doesn't it? Bielsa talks from time to time about how he likes to go to League One and League Two games and I think he genuinely enjoys the environment and, and the atmosphere, but I think he likes the, the ladder system as well and, and you know, it does obviously exist elsewhere. Every, every country has a pyramid but in England that there is genuinely that sense that you can hop up the ladder and you can go from being fairly far down the, the EFL to knocking about a, a relatively high level of the championship or potentially if, if a year goes well getting yourself into the, the Premier League and that's that's where the magic is but that's the sport isn't it that's why Bielsa calls the FA Cup the purest form of football in, in England because it's open to everybody. It's just 11 v 11, sometimes on appalling pitches and sometimes with you know two styles of play which totally clash with each other and can make for you know bizarre happenings like Crawley pasting Bielsa's leads back in January and all the defeats we've seen like Histon and Sutton United and, and Newport County. And it's not enjoyable at the time if you're on the end of it. But that's the point, isn't it? That's the point. If you have everything, what else is there to aspire to and, and what else is there to to seek to achieve. You know, there are clearly people out there and a, a small group of them who love the idea of, of the ESL because it, it's all about monopolising money and, and monopolising success. But for the vast majority of people, football is football as it was 100 years ago and, and hopefully how it will be in 100 years' time. Well, aren't we lucky? We've got one of the mighty Super League clubs coming to town 
at the weekend. What a privilege, Phil. This could have been fun in games, I think, had, had the European Super League stuck it out a little bit longer. You might well have seen more protests on on Sunday, given that, from what I'm reading this morning, Manchester United's fans are blocking the entrance to Carrington training ground as we speak. I think you might have seen a few of them over here in another sort of oh, bizarre, eclectic mix of Leeds and Manchester United mingling around on, on the street for um, for the greater good. I suspect what's happened over the last couple of days, or the last 48 hours, will take the sting out of the atmosphere somewhat, um, and, and such as it is, minus a crowd. I wouldn't expect to see much in the way of protests this weekend or, or anything comparable to, to Monday night. But it's another big game and it's another big test. And it's another big test because unlike Liverpool and Manchester City, who Leeds pushed very close in the first month or so of the season, they did take a bit of a hiding at Old Trafford. And I, and I felt that it was a 6-2 game which kind of could have ended as any scoreline given the number of chances but they really get, did get taken to the cleaners in the first first half hour or so. Just looking down the remaining fixtures, actually, it's probably the last remaining glamour of the uh, of the season, isn't it? The remaining five after that are all fairly uh, low-ranking average teams: Brighton, uh, Tottenham, Burnley, Southampton, West Brom. Even even Tottenham. That was the joke, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> I felt we'd I felt we'd just about done it um, previously, but you know. These, th- these things never get old, never get old. But it makes you wonder, though, doesn't it, what sort of points tally they, they could finish on. It's not to say that they will win all of those games, but Brighton have been very mixed this season. Tottenham are minus a manager. Burnley are still in trouble. Southampton under Hasenhutl just cannot cannot find any uh, momentum at all. And then it's West Brom on the last day. There are a lot of points, I think, potentially up for, for grabs there. But this is by far the, the most difficult of the games that are left. And and actually, considering that, that City did weaken the, the team as much as they ever weaken anything, on paper before that kicked off, I know the game changed, but it leads reduced to, to 10 players before half time. But I think given that that was in between the Dortmund games, I always kind of felt that Man United at home might be the most difficult of the three. Um, and they are in very, very good form at the moment. I know we uh, we all pulled together in the spirit of saving football and all that, but Man City beating Villa through the week was probably a good result for Leeds, actually, when you look at uh, what it's done to the table in terms of uh, 11th position, it's sat them below. There's, they've still got that game in hand, but they're two points behind. Um, so we can hoover up another two or three million quid in Premier League prize money if we're lucky, because that's what it's all about, isn't it? Um, but also, just to remove any sniff of the title from uh, from Man United, we don't want them coming to Ellen Road with their tails uh, up, do we? See, there was a little bit of me was wanting that jeopardy in this. I think I don't know if it's just the, the talk of the, the close shop of the Super League has made me feel reckless this week, but I thought, wouldn't it be nice for them to come thinking they've got a, they're back in the title race and yeah. for us to snuff it out? That's true. Yeah, I mean, you look at how we uh, how much we enjoyed beating Arsenal and that essentially handed the title to, to Man United. Yeah, when, uh, when Hasselbank scored that header at the South Stand. Yeah, it's, it's very true. You do just want to win on the day, don't you? I don't think I'll ever understand Michael. He's the most paranoid person ever. But he was, but he was hoping that Man United might be coming over here on on Sunday with a with a sniff of the a sniff of the title. I mean, one of our reporters, Laurie Whitwell, wrote earlier this week that when the the gap went to to eight points, that it was highly unlikely that it was going to happen. But actually, there, there was just suddenly that little little bit of doubt. And then you saw City fall behind really early at Villa. And it did occur to you that had they lost that game and, and Man United had come to Ellen Road and won and, and the gap had gone down to five, that suddenly it would be it would be on the line again. I think with the gap at 11, it's it's basically done. 
Um, he's obviously turning over a new leaf, is Michael. I just, I think there's, there's just a twinkle in his eye. He likes to just have that little element of danger in his life. I think I've got such fond memories of those games of like of beating Arsenal and handing Man United the title. Just that thing of being able to spoil someone's party is just he's always there, and it's the some of the best days I've had at football. So yeah. I can never resist it. Will we spoil their party? That's the question. Do we have it in us to spoil the party? And have we uh, evolved from the 6-2? I think so. I think defensively Leeds are better than they were at, at that point. There's still frailty at the back and that's kind of always going to be there or, or at least in, in the short term. The big problem at Old Trafford was that they lost the midfield instantly. Uh, Bielsa said himself afterwards, he didn't, he didn't anticipate the way in which Fred and McTominay were going to attack that part of the pitch. Two kind of, not necessarily holding midfielders, but I don't think he expected that attacking aggression from them and probably didn't expect those two finishes from McTominay either. But um, Bruno Fernandes was clever on the day. He, he was good at pulling Calvin Phillips around and using the man marking to, to open up gaps. And it, it just got away from them really, really quickly. And all the, all the talk beforehand, I know the build-up was a little bit, a little bit something and nothing because there wasn't a crowd over there. But still, you know, it was the it was the teams going at it again for the first time in the league for well over fifteen years, and it, it just it just came to came to nothing. But even so, there were points in that game where it was really you know it felt really critical. There was that incredible save from De Gea. It was uh, Rafinha's volley that he clawed out from under the the crossbar. And and had that gone in at that stage, it it might well have been very different on the day. I, I don't think there's any doubt that Manchester United had the better of it and they had more chances. And I think they could have as, as easily come away saying we scored six, but we could have scored 12. But it felt a little bit the same for Leeds. One of those games where you'd had no idea how it was going to finish because it just seemed to be end-to-end and, and chance after chance. But they, they cannot lose the midfield again in the way that they did that day. And, and they can't be so so open at the back, despite the, the attacking and the, the aggressive nature of Bielsa's tactics, you do have to be more disciplined than that. And the one feature we've had this season is always that hope. Like, you know, there are so many fixtures in this league where teams almost seem to not bother with some teams. Like the, the classic example was always Burnley going to Manchester City and conceding five every season. Whereas, you know, us facing Man United, even as a newly promoted side, and even given what went on in that 6-2, we've got a shot at this because if we're on our day, on our game, sorry, on the day, and they're not quite at the races, then we give ourselves every chance. I think, you know, on an individual basis, as we saw at Old Trafford, you know, they've got some players who can really do us some damage and players, you know, beyond the scope of what we could afford at the minute, thinking, you know, like Fernandez and, and you look at Rashford, obviously. But if conditions are favourable, then I think we've got a shot. I think as well, since that game at Old Trafford, other than maybe a half against Arsenal, things have been a lot a lot more sane with us, haven't they? It feels it does feel like we've kind of got a grip on this, and if we can go into as in the Liverpool game, they may dominate a half, but we have it. We have it in us to turn it around as well. And if we just need to stay in this game, I think as much as anything, be aware as well of what they've got coming up. They've got the first leg against Roma in the Europa League next Thursday, and then on Sunday they've got Liverpool, and Liverpool, you know, still badly need points for for fourth place, and and then you know straight after that it's away to Rome for the, the second leg. So. They do have other things going on and, and I suspect their eyes will be on other things given that the gap to City is 11 points. I don't think they'll they'll be particularly confident of, of clawing that back at all. So with some interest, I think, we'll look to see the sort of team Solskjaer plays, whether he rests anybody, whether he leaves anybody out, whether he's inclined to go with much the same team as he did at Old Trafford given that it worked so well for them over there. But as I say, I, I think this is a, a really, really difficult game. I probably feel less confident about this 
than I did about Liverpool on Monday night because Liverpool just seem as if they're... It's not that they're going through the motions, but they certainly seem as if the, the spark's gone from a lot of their play. This is a, a tough, tough game, but it does come before a very tough week. You see, I refuse to accept that Marcelo Bielsa can't get one over Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, you know, in a tactical sense. Like, they've obviously got some brilliant players. There's, you know, we can't pretend otherwise. But there's just that part of me thinks he must have learned so much from what went on at Old Trafford. Surely he's going to have something in the locker there. Whatever it is, I don't know how his genius and his, his magic works, but whatever it is, there's something he will tell them to do that should hopefully mean that we don't repeat what happened there and we give ourselves a, a far greater shot at this. I, I, I don't know, given the run that we're on at the minute and the fact that we owe them one and there's probably little expectation that we'll get anything, we just might, we just might. Absolutely. One of the things I've enjoyed this season is seeing the contrast between game one against Premier League side and, and game two. You saw it with Leicester and the pitch was appalling that night at Elland Road, but Leeds made a lot of errors and played into Leicester's hands constantly. But then away at the King Power, it was it was very different. There was that early goal from Harvey Barnes, but from that point onwards, it was so much more disciplined and, and so much more well-structured and, and balanced. And you're right, that's what you're looking for this time. You're looking for them to avoid the kind of cheap goals that they gave away. And it felt as if you blinked and Manchester United were 4-0 up at Old Trafford. It was like booming and the game was gone. And and you're right about Bielsa. You know, that that's where he focuses so heavily is on tactics and on countering the opposition or at least countering the opposition through attacking them in the right way and, and defending properly. So, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I'm not a social fan, I have to say. I, I, it struck me as a weird kind of relationship over there right from the start, irrespective of the, the results as they've been and, and where they are in the table. So it would it would be good to see that. But I think Bielsa will be mindful of that himself. I think he will he will want this to look far more pretty than it did over that way. I just can't accept that Scott McTominay, we, we made him look like peak era Patrick Vieira, didn't we, um, in, the, in that first fixture. That's not right. I always joke with Sol Bamba that somehow Leeds managed to make him look like Busquets. Um, in that that game with Christensen down at Cardiff, so um, so it can happen. And even he says, no disrespect to him at all. He says, I don't know where that ever came from. You know, that's never, never been my game. But they just said to me that night, just play play as a defensive midfielder. So so I did, and he looked, he looked like Champions League Champions League quality. Um, I think there was an element of that at Old Trafford of, of Leeds making certain players look very good over there. But at the same time, they did play well, um, and they did um, absolutely deserve to win. What are you fancying them? I feel like I've seen far too many defeats against Man United to be anything like confident. Um, I think in my lifetime we've got like, well, of the games I've seen, probably like four or five wins. So I'm thinking probably a defeat. Ah, there he is. There, <laughs> That's the one that you know and love there, uh, that's Phil. It. That's it. Yeah, that's more like it. I think I'm going to agree, though. I, I'm going to agree in the hope that like Man City away, I'm, I'm completely wrong. It does feel unpredictable to me, this. I, I think a lot will depend on the team that, that Solskjaer picks and also somebody like Rafinha being available and, and we should find out in the next couple of days whether, whether he is. But yes, I'm, I'm kind of minded to say away win. You miserable pair. 1-0 leads. 1-0 leads. Stuart Dallas running from deep, scores another goal to celebrate his 30th birthday and um, puts the ESL in the bin. Um, <laughs> one to watch we need, Phil. And well, it's going to be Solskjaer's lineup. I want to see what he does with Fernandez and what he does with Pogba, what he does with the other players that he would absolutely be planning to start against Roma 
in the Europa League. That that has to be the target for them. It has to be the target for him as well, given that he does have this reputation of certainly as a coach over there, never having won a trophy yet. I suspect that a little bit like Guardiola before the Dortmund game, they will be um, below full strength and that could, of course, be crucial. Lovely stuff. Thank you for that, gentlemen. Uh, we'll get the band back together next week and, uh, and do it all again. You can tweet us at the Phil Hay Show, by the way, if you want to get in touch with us, the new Twitter account and subscribe to The Athletic for three ninety nine a month for six months. 40% off the full price at theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. We'll speak to you next week. The Phil Hay Show. 